Revelation 6 in verse number 1, and I saw, this is John speaking, when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Now, these are the four beasts that surround the throne of glory. And verse 2, he says, and I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. When he had opened the third seal... I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat upon him was death, and hell followed him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. I want to speak to you on the subject this morning, the horsemen of the apocalypse. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessings upon the Word of God here this morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and glorified, and we pray that truth would be presented. Lord, not only presented, but Lord, that truth would be received. Lord, I don't know the needs of each individual here today or those listening through live stream, but Lord, you do. Lord, your Word of God has a way of always meeting our needs and Lord, the Holy Spirit has to work in our hearts in order for uh, for you to work in our hearts. So we pray, God, that you would uh, get us out of the way, help us to faithfully speak the Word of God, make good use of our time. Uh, Lord, not run any rabbit trails that you don't want us to run. And Lord, just that when this day is over, we'll be glad that we came to church. We'll feel fed, we'll feel instructed, we'll feel challenged, but Lord, above all, that we will have been drawn closer to you. If there be anyone in our midst that's without Christ, Lord, would you speak to their heart in conviction? Draw them to you as only the Holy Spirit can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I've already mentioned, people are intrigued by the book of Revelation. And if you're looking for sensational prophecies and connections to current events today, you will be sadly disappointed. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe in prophecy, and you know what? I believe in conspiracies. I do. Uh, I think that there was a conspiracy in the Garden of Eden. Satan had a conspiracy to take down the human race because, I think, probably jealousy. Satan had been cast out of heaven. He had lost his position. And here, God created Adam after his image and basically said, Adam, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the earth to oversee. Well, the devil didn't like that. And so ever since then, there have been conspiracies. Some of them, uh, the devil has used 
various leaders and people in prominence and position, and regardless of how he works, uh, there are conspiracies. But I've also seen Satan use this to consume people in things that they can do nothing about, while they do nothing about things that they can do something about. I hope you caught that. I believe in conspiracies, but I also know that conspiracies, you get too wrapped up in conspiracies, you're going to fall into the hands of the devil himself. He's going to hinder you from having a life that brings glory and honor to God. He will develop in you a spirit of fear, and you'll end up saturating your mind and spending all of your time dealing with things that you can't know for sure, that you can't do anything about. Someone once told me, in fact, this was many, many years ago. I'm in our men's restroom, and uh, there's a brother in there, well-meaning, well-intentioned, and he was into all these conspiracies. And he says, Pastor, you, you do know that they have concentration camps for us. And I just, you know, I didn't know this brother very well, and I'm like, okay. They do, you know, and I've heard that, I've heard that, but you know that the other side, the liberals say that the conservatives have concentration camps built for them. They talk about it, but nobody's actually seen one. I think I said this several months ago, I think maybe the concentration camps is where Bigfoot lives, because everybody knows he exists, but nobody's actually got any proof, right? And that's the way a lot of conspiracies are. You can just get all wrapped up in things that you can do nothing about. But rest assured, there are conspiracies. So many men have engaged in argument and division over the upcoming tribulation period. Now, these seals that the Lord is opening, this is instigating what is called a tribulation period. I'm sure that many of you have heard of the tribulation. There's the tribulation period, but then there's also great tribulation that the Bible talks about. I believe personally that the tribulation period is a seven-year period of time. It's a week of years, if you will. That's a prophetic week, and the book of Daniel talks about it. And, you know, the book of Jeremiah refers to it as Jacob's trouble. And I know a lot of Christians, a lot of church people, who they are bound and determined to get the church going through the tribulation period. And yet they all they can do is point to current events, but they can't necessarily, they can't rightly divide the scripture and show that, at least not dogmatically. A lot of division, a lot of argument over the tribulation period, but I believe that most of it would fall under the category of pride and ego rather than the category of truth. Listen, I'm okay with someone who honestly studies the Bible and thinks that they found something. I've done this myself. I I have been sure that I have discovered something in my own personal study that contradicted what I had been taught or what mainstream Christianity had come to believe. And I think that that's okay as long as it is handled in a charitable manner. And I don't think that it's okay if someone's trying to find something that no one else has found so that they can pat themselves on the back, sell a book, or become somebody's internet guru. That's just pride and ego, and it doesn't glorify the Lord. 
And so be careful. We live in the information day. Knowledge is running to and fro. You can find all kinds of teachings on the web that are prophetic about the book, book of Revelation. But just be careful because many of those are not prophetic. They're pathetic. And they don't rightly divide the word of truth. And they're trying to impress you with how that they figured out something that way more spiritual men than them have never seemed to be able to figure out. Now, I'll confess to you that I think I have, I think I understand some things out of the Bible that way better men than me, I, I believe personally that they had it wrong. That's not ego. I just have to look at the Word of God and it's like, hey, I'm not, if I see it, I'm going to teach it the way that I see it. I'm not going to worry about, oh, am I going to offend this this Bible college or this guru or is somebody going to reject me? I'm going to teach it the way that I see it. And if I see it differently than other people see it, I'm just going to realize that I've got to give an account before God. And But if I start doing that to try to impress people, or to try to come across like I'm better or more spiritual or smarter than some better men before me, I think that that is certainly the wrong direction to go. But one thing that I believe for certain, and that is this, and you can do what you want with it, but I believe with all certainty that when the Lord starts opening these seals and the tribulation period begins, I believe that the church is gone. The church is already out of here. Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus talks about these churches, but by the time you get to the end of Revelation chapter number 3, and all of the tribulation, the seals and the trumpets and the vials and all of this, you don't find the church mentioned anywhere. But you do find this phrase, come up hither, that I just think that that is more than just ironic, I believe that it is probably providential. First Thessalonians 1 and verse number 10, this is Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, speaking to the church, right slap dab in the middle. You do know what slap dab means, right? Good, because that's, that's a theological term. Slap dab in the middle of the church, what we're talking about here from the Bible, He says to them to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. You're in Revelation 6. I want you to skip down and look at verse number 17. It says, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? All right, that is after six of these seals have been opened. This is the great day of the Lord's wrath, and Paul tells the Christians at Thessalonica that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, has delivered them, and that means us too, from the wrath to come. He also said in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. Notice the comma that separates those two events. When we say, oftentimes I'll say, hey, I'm looking for Jesus to come again. Well, the Bible believer who rightly divides the word of truth, really, he, he understands that 
the return of Jesus Christ is a two-part thing. You have the rapture of the church where Jesus, he comes back, but he doesn't set foot on earth. He sets foot on the clouds above the earth, the air above the earth. And that's when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall be caught up together with them in, in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We view the second coming as a two-part thing. You've got the rapture. And then after that, I'd probably around seven years, the best that I can ascertain, Seven years later, you have Revelation 19, where the Lord is physically coming back to this earth, and the Old Testament prophet says that he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives, it's going to cleave in two, and he's going to ride right into Jerusalem. Of course, there's going to be some riding on that white horse down through Edom and Bozrah and the Battle of Armageddon, and there's going to be a lot of bloodshed during that time. That's what Revelation 19, as well as Joel and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they make it pretty crystal clear about the coming of the Lord. Now, it is important to understand that John, as he's seeing these seals opening, that John has been caught up to the throne. He's in the third heaven when he's seeing these horses, these horsemen that uh, begin to ride and who's riding on them. When he sees that, he's seeing it from the third heaven. I heard a preacher say this, and I, and I think it's true, that things on earth have representation in heaven. If you've already read in Revelation up to this point at chapter 6, we read in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, that John saw this vision of the Son of Man, the Son of God, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, his hair was wool, and in his, in his hand were stars, and there were candlesticks and so forth. And so these stars and candlesticks and the angels of the churches are all representations of things in heaven, the way that the Lord is seeing the church. I don't believe that John was seeing what was actually going on in a congregation that was taking place, an assembly in Ephesus and Sardis and Thyatira. These were representations in heaven that demonstrated the character and the nature of what was going on in earth. And we find that throughout the Scripture. Now, if we're going to be raptured before this happens and I believe that we are, the question that we can ask is, why should we care? Well, I'll tell you, Luke 12, verse 49, Jesus said this. This is red letters, if you have a red letter Bible. He said, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? I'll tell you what I see personally in that statement is the Lord saying that there's a lot of things that are going to happen in the future, But it's not like that it's just going to happen just suddenly out of the blue. I believe that there's a lot of things that will be leading toward. I'm certain, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that the last two or three years of pandemic and all that's happened in America is just the Antichrist setting the table for the future. I don't believe that we're in the tribulation period. I don't believe that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. I certainly don't believe that 
that wearing a mask is the mask of the beast. And I've heard Christians who got, you know, read some blog, and I'm, I'm not offended by that, and I'm not trying to offend people that believe that way. But I am saying that we have to be careful that we keep our focus on the Word of God. If you start making, if you get too aggressive in making a connection between something in the Bible and what's going on in current events, you, you can get really, really led astray. I remember, I remember several, actually I remember six years ago, there were a lot of Christians that were just absolutely certain that Donald Trump was the last Trump referred to in the Bible. I, I know it's funny, isn't it? But it's not funny when some Bible-believing Christian is telling you that and their eyes are all glossed over. Brother Mitchell, do you, have you seen this? And I'm like, mm, you know, I, I would not do this out of courtesy to them, but in my mind I'm hearing in the background... It's like, come on, you know, let's just, let's chill out a little bit here and let's study the Bible and do thyself no harm. We need to be careful about a lot of these things. And so having said all that, let's take a look at these, uh, these four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I just called it that. That's what you hear that. I'm sure there was probably a movie the Hollywood made called that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what these four horsemen are commonly referred to, the Acopolips. The the, <laughs> that word just simply means the it's like the end of the world or cataclysmic things that are the, you know, we talk about when's the end of the world going to come. Well, when the tribulation happens, the end of the world as we know it's going to come. But the Bible makes it clear that after the tribulation period, the King of kings and Lord of lords is going to rule and reign for 1,000 years, a millennium. And then after that, Satan's going to be loosed out of the bottomless pit. And just to, to show you how corrupt our human nature is, He's going to deceive the nations once again. They're going to come against him. And this time it's not going to be the battle of Armageddon. The Lord of lords and king of kings is just going to take him, throw him in the bottomless pit, wipe out all the people that were deceived, blow up this earth and heaven and create a brand new one. And all of the things that we're reminded of that have happened, all of the sin and sorrow and heartache and all of the problems of this life are not even going to be remembered anymore. That's going to be wonderful. And so sometimes we use terminology that what we mean and what we're saying, it's not exactly the same. I, I tell people, it's like, hey, wouldn't you like to, uh, wouldn't you like to, when you die, go to heaven forever? Well, I know, technically, we're not going to live in heaven forever. We're coming down to this earth for a thousand years. And when there's a new heaven and a new earth, I don't know where we're going to be. I have no idea. Some people have speculated that if you're faithful, the Lord's going to give you your own planet. How many of you have ever heard that before? All right. Several of you have. Well, that's all speculation. I don't know what the Lord's going to do with us. But one thing I do know, it's about Jesus and then secondarily, it's about 
I hate to say this, maybe this might burst your bubble, it's about Israel. And the fact that we get in on any of these blessings, we ought to just say, praise the Lord, because we were lost Gentiles that were alienated and we had no right to um, to the commonwealth of Israel. And that's, I'm saying all kinds of things that are a lot of different studies for another time. Number one, the first seal and the rider on the white horse. In verse number two, once again, he said, he saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Most of the Christian world, most of the Christian world teaches that this rider on this white horse is Jesus Christ. Why do they teach that? Well, Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he shall judge and make war. So, yeah, you've got two different riders on a white horse, and, you know, you've got to be careful when it comes to cross-referencing. I have heard a lot of nonsensical teaching based on cross-referencing one verse with another. Maybe you find one word in this verse, you find the same word in this verse, and sometimes there is a connection. But you've got to be careful with that, because you can make connections that are not there. This is a false and dangerous assumption that this white horse rider is the same as the white horse rider in Revelation 19. In our text here, remember the lamb is not riding this horse. The lamb is the one that is opening the seals. The rider of the white horse in Revelation 19 has on his head many crowns. And he is, um, you know, you just got to be careful. I, I don't, if I don't know for sure, in Revelation 19, there is no question that that's Jesus Christ. Here in Revelation 6, nothing, absolutely nothing is said that indicates that this rider on this white horse is Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was alive and he was performing miracles and the Jews attributed his miracles to Beelzebub? Remember what the Lord said about it? He said that to do so is blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Well, if this rider on this white horse is not Jesus, as many say, then I would say that we are blaspheming Jesus Christ. If what I believe, I believe that this rider on this white horse is referring to the Antichrist. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take any chances of assuming that the Antichrist is Jesus Christ. That's what the devil wants us to do, by the way. Now, at first, when the Antichrist shows up, he's going to look very much like Jesus Christ. That's going to be his intent. That's going to be his subtle ploy. And that's been the way that the devil has worked all the time. His ministers, by the way, are transformed into ministers of righteousness. He is an angel of light, and he can be very, very religious, and he wants imitations of Jesus. He wants you to think that what he is presenting to you is very Christ-like. Have you thought about the Christian world around us? 
where, I mean, anything that is black and white or judgmental towards sin or that which is wrong is now considered unchristlike. And yet, in the you know, if you read the Gospels, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, according to the modern Christian definition, you could make a good argument that Jesus was not very Christ-like. In fact, he was very unchristlike. So what are we saying here? What we're saying is that there are other Jesuses, and they sometimes look good and nice, and uh, it seems like they're just full of light. It's imitations. It's false, and it's anti-Christ. This writer here has a bow. Jesus has a sword. This writer has a crown. Jesus has many crowns. This writer is conquering. Jesus is smiting in Revelation 19. In fact, if you understand the Bible, Jesus, when this happens, the tribulation, Jesus has already conquered. He conquered at the cross of Calvary. We sing about victory in Jesus. And so a lot of the modern religions, they want to present a church that is trying to usher in the kingdom. It's called post-millennial doctrine, or even amillennial doctrine has a connection there. And it's this idea that Jesus, through the established church, is just going to continue to make society better and better and better, and we're going to become so good that he's just going to say, I'm just going to come down there and be there with them. Uh, That's heresy, folks. That is not Bible truth. Genesis chapter number 10 and verse number 8, it says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalni, and the land of Shinar. We know that as Babylon. Nimrod was the mighty hunter. We have a rider on a horse here that has a bow. Have you ever seen the symbol of peace used by religious leaders? whether it be Catholic or Orthodox, and you see this, you've seen it where they make a peace sign, but it's kind of, it's not like, you know, groovy dude. It's not that at all. It's where they kind of curve those fingers, and these fingers are tucked down. You've seen that probably on artistic work. You've seen the Pope do that. The Orthodox has all kinds of different symbolism with the same thing. You know, I find it very interesting. And by the way, if you try to research where did this symbol come from, they claim that Peter, who was the first pope, that he had damage to the ulnar nerve in his right pinky finger. And he was trying to do this, but he couldn't because he had damage. Where did they get that from? I know. They make it up. The Bible believer who rightly divides the word of truth, when I see that, I see that as the symbol of a bowman. You say, what are you doing, preacher? Are you trying, are you picking on a particular religion or so? Absolutely not. You do whatever you want with that. I'm not, uh, 
Uh, I am, I'm not trying to um, make something there that's not, and if you don't see that, then it, it's not going to shatter your faith or uh, your standing with God, but I see a connection there. And as I read the rest of the book of Revelation, I find that the Antichrist is going to be connected with a religion. Right now, we're seeing what's going on on the earth very much politically and economically and uh, and geologically on the earth. We're seeing these seals that demonstrate that. Here later on, not this message, but another message, we're going to see that there are martyrs that are slain and so forth. But you get further on in the book of Revelation and you find that as John, by the revelation of Jesus Christ, gives us several different trips through the tribulation period. It's important to understand that the seals and the trumpets and the the vials, it's not consecutive. It's three different trips from a different perspective through the tribulation period. And we're going to find later on that this mystery Babylon is a woman that's riding on a beast and she has in her hand a cup full of abominations. Very religious, by the way. And so... I'm not saying that the Pope is the Antichrist, but I am saying that there is a religious system that looks very much like Christianity, but is full of symbolism that traces all the way back to Nimrod and the Babylonian mystery religions, you find the same symbolism. I wonder, I I, I can't show you this, I don't know it to be true, but I can't wonder, can't help but wonder if maybe that uh, in the early millenniums before Christ, that some way, way back there, maybe that Babylonian religion, Baal worship, if you will, if they didn't refer to Nimrod as having some kind of a symbol like a bowman like this. Like I said, you do whatever you want to with it. My job is to just tell you the way that I see it. Daniel 11 and verse number 21 Speaking of the Antichrist, and in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going forth to conquer, but he's not necessarily conquering. Notice this white horse rider has a bow, but we don't find anything about an arrow. And I believe the reason is because the way that he is conquering is as the Bible prophesies. Daniel 8 and verse number 25, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. That's what's going to happen to the Antichrist. And so I'm giving you a small handful of many connections that the Word of God gives us, and I believe that as God's people, we should all be students of the Scripture. You should know more about the Bible than you know about the media and Hollywood. And listen, don't base what you believe and how you see uh, the world and the Christian life based on what you're seeing through social media and Google. Go right to the Word of God. Every child of God should have a good working familiarity with this book. 
You should be able to do the same thing that the preacher does. As you read some of these very intriguing passages in Revelation and you see a word and you're so familiar with the Bible that you go, this light bulb goes, ding, 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 ding. I remember reading something like that over in Second Thessalonians or Ezekiel or Daniel. And you remember, and so you go and you look at that and you go, wow, I see that connection. Don't expect the preacher or organized religion to spoon feed you everything that you ought to believe. You ought to be processing everything that I'm saying to you here today. Because you and I are all individually, I'm accountable for what I am preaching and teaching. You're accountable for learning the Word of God. We've seen in the last three years how quickly the world can change. Amen? A lot of changes really quick. Consider how Christianity has changed in the last 20 years. We may never see the things that John is seeing, but the stage is being set. And the Christian who doesn't recognize it is sound asleep. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Hold your place here. We'll come back. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Let's just read. I was going to start in verse 3, but let's start in verse number 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist, folks. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Jesus referred to this as the abomination of desolation. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery, watch this in verse 7. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Listen, we can recognize how the Antichrist, how the spirit of Antichrist is working in our world today by reading and understanding prophecy of how he's going to work in the future in the tribulation period. He's not going to change his nature. He's going to be doing the same things, but he's going to be without, he's going to be unhindered. It's just going to be full blown. But that mystery of iniquity was working back when Paul wrote this, and it certainly continued to work today. Verse number nine, even him, excuse me, verse eight, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Why? Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause... 
God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, and they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. How can we have mainstream Christian denominations today that are adopting the LGBTQ lifestyle as acceptable? I mean, literally accepting transgender pastors in their churches. How how can we have that? And I'm not going to draw attention to all of that today by naming the denomination. Most of you probably know what denomination I'm talking about. But the same thing was happening in other mainstream Christian denominations 10 years ago and 20 years ago. How can we look at that and go, how can that be right here when we reject the love of the truth? You know why I am so adamant that we have a perfect Bible right here? This King James Version of the Bible, I believe with all of my heart, that we have a perfect and a pure Bible. Every word in this Bible is accurate and true. And when you change words, you can't not change meanings. And when you change meanings, you just veered away from the truth. And you can look at your ESV or your other NIV, whatever Bible version that you want to read and say, well, I, I understand that better. Well, that very well may be true. But are you understanding what you're understanding? Is it so? Is it true? So I don't want a Bible that's easy to understand if I'm understanding something that isn't so. You change a word, you change a meaning. And if you understand it easily, it's like now you just readily accepted something that ain't so. You may veer just a little bit. Well, I believe all of the right doctrines. I was taught the truth. and But you know what? You can change that and still, well, you were taught Bible truth and doctrine from the King James Version. And then you can veer and you may not get, you may not get too far away from the truth in your understanding. But what about the next generation? Has anyone ever stopped and scratched their head and go, how in the world could Christianity become what it is today? It's real simple. You veer away from the truth yesterday, and every day, every Sunday, you get further and further and further away. The problem in modern Christianity is not always what's being said, it's what's being left out. That's where the devil works. And he casts a big question mark. Not only that, but if you won't receive the love of the truth, God says, I'll just send you strong delusion. If you don't want the truth, then I'm not going to give it to you. You ever wondered why God just doesn't come out and tell us what's going to happen? Why does he give us riders on horses and mystery Babylon? And why uh, why do we have Jesus with stars in his hand? I'll tell you why. God is a God who will give us all the truth that we want, but he's not going to spoon feed us. I believe part of as his children, he gets glory and honor by us studying his word and finding out the truth for ourselves. So, I think for sake of time, we're going to end 
with this first rider. We'll pick up on the second and the third and the fourth riders on the white horses. Um, So let me just draw your attention. I'm trying to figure out how to end this up without taking you till 3 o'clock this afternoon. Unless you want to, 3 o'clock. Several spiritual people here. We have spiritual people and we have hungry people. I think we have more hungry people than we have spiritual people. I don't want to preach till 3 o'clock either. Look at this, folks. Look, look at it once again in Second Thessalonians and verse number 10. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Before you can be saved, you have to love the truth. It's a very dishonest culture that we live in. Lying, you know, you take the leaders of our country, they can get up and they can tell a bold-faced lie for their cause, and as long as we agree with their cause, we think, oh, well, their lie is okay. All's fair in love and war. And we're in, a, we're in a generation where dishonesty and lying has become so common, and the reason that we've allowed it into our culture and we've made exceptions is because down deep we don't have a love for the truth. Why is there very little conviction when the gospel is preached? Because there's not a love of the truth in our culture. Why is it like the words of God? We can say, thou shalt not. And we can give the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And people can sit in the church who are living in adultery and sin, and they can say, hey, that's a great sermon, preacher. How, how, How can we do that? How can we allow all these things? Well, it's because when we reject the truth. Someone once said that rejected light becomes lightning. And you know what? You can resist the Lord a little here and a little there, but each time we resist the truth, our heart gets a little bit harder and we become delusional. When it says that God shall send them strong delusion... It may not be that God did anything different other than just simply withdrawing and saying, you know what, I'm the God of truth. Without me, you cannot get light, you cannot get revelation. And so when we say, God, we don't want you, then we reject that light. Brothers and sisters, do you love the truth? you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you love the truth? Do you want the truth? Or do you want to just continue to have pleasure in your unrighteousness? And therein lies the problem. You can't say, I want Jesus and I want truth, but I also want my sin. You have to make a decision. And that's where repentance comes in. If you're allowing sin in your life, you need to repent. If you're not saved, you need to repent and love the truth. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ.